Lord, we do thank you for this chance to be together again, Lord. Thank you for your awe-inspiring love that Aaron's singing about tonight that we have the chance to be a part of. God, we thank you that we have the chance to read your word tonight, to, to praise you, to lift up your name. God, I just thank you for this chance to be together. Once again, I pray you'd bless each person here and prepare our hearts to receive from you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. Great set tonight, man. Well, it's good to see you all. Glad you could be here tonight. Uh, looking forward. I, I told you I was going to get back to you on this. I've, I've missed three weeks. <laughs> so I, I've had three stories I needed to make up for you. I have three tonight. Uh, tonight's a short, uh, short, well, you know, Jeremy version of short service. It's uh, only seven verses that we're going through tonight as we go through the letter to the church at Philadelphia in the book of Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Um, But I'm going to fill it. So I've got other stuff to talk about as well. Um, I'll be honest, one of these stories that I'm going to read to you, I'm going to fill in the background. Uh, I've debated whether to read it I've gone back and forth on it, or at least to talk about it, because it's, it's intense. And um, actually, it's the story that made me come up with the idea for this series. Um, and it's, it's horrifying. Uh, but I think when you see the context of what the people of God have suffered in history, and, and in this specifically under the Soviet Union in the country of Romania, which will be the last story we read tonight. Um, I listened to a podcast about it, and uh, I'm not a podcast guy. You may not know that, but I just, I just don't tend to like absorb a lot of content from that way. You know, a lot of people listen to it every drive. I just don't. I have one podcast I listen to. It's a, it's a history podcast, and he did uh, an episode that he called The Anti-Humans about the communist, uh, just the, the abhorrent nature of the communist party uh, in the Soviet Union and what they did to Eastern Europe in that, uh, in that period right after World War II when the Nazis had just run across that land and, and wrecked it. And then right on the heels of that, the Soviets came in. And uh, this story was kind of the crowning, uh, the crowning piece of that podcast was talking about this Romanian prison called Petesht. And like I said, it's very intense, and um, I didn't know whether I'd talk about it, but I feel it's necessary, and I've got two weeks left, so uh, it's not like I'm going to send you away in droves, but I'm going to tell you the story about Petesht. Uh, It's very dark, but it reminds us, again, as I've tried each week, it reminds us of what the church has suffered, and it's only in the light of suffering that we can see revelation for what it is, which is the book of comfort. This book is not meant to make you afraid, to make you fearful. It's meant to comfort true believers. And tonight, interestingly enough, we have the church at Philadelphia. If you know Philadelphia, uh, the word itself means 
the love of brothers, right? So philo is the, the word for love, like a kind of friendship love, this, this love of wisdom, it's often used that way. And adelphos is the Greek word for brother. So you have this, the city, right? In Philadelphia in America, it's called the city of brotherly love. That's why, because that's what the word means. Um, so we're gonna see that tonight. And the message to the church at Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, is to be encouraged, which is unique. It's unique that the story for them is to be encouraged because as we've seen in each church, uh, except for the church at Smyrna, which was prepared for suffering, each church has had things they've been commended for and things they've been rebuked for. The church at Philadelphia, pure commendation, no rebuke. They're a church that's doing it right. But I also recognize that the church at Philadelphia is one of seven churches. And I think all too often we think maybe we received this message from the Lord and we probably more often have some things we need to change that we're missing. But we, we tend to think that that's where we're at, right? But let me start here. This is John Fox's Book of Martyrs. We actually are past where John Fox wrote. Of course, he lived in the 1500s, so he did not write these. These are all more modern stories. They're all coming out of the the 60s and 70s. I'm gonna read you three to make up for the the last ones that I missed for the last two weeks. Here's the first one. I I think each of these I I handpicked. I think they're interesting. This says Soviet Union, 1968. Here's the first. This is the report of a Christian courier who carried messages in and out of the Soviet Union and on one trip got into a Soviet camp to visit Christian prisoners who were in the camp. I just think this is interesting, this perspective. Again, it's not a perspective most Americans have on suffering, but listen to what this woman said. I saw the wife of a Christian martyr who left many children behind. She looked amazingly young. Although she had grown up children, I asked her for an explanation. She answered, suffering has renewed my youth. Another Christian told me, we would like an easing of our conditions, but not full ceasing of the oppression. We fear that liberty would make us lose the burning love of Christ. Huh. Another one said, when we think of the cloud of witnesses in the spiritual skies, we are happy that that part of the sky which is the most cloudy (laughs) is over the communist countries. We are happy to give the greatest number of martyrs. They have a totally different worldview from what we can understand when we live in comfort. It's in that spirit, in that heart, that the book of Revelation was written to Christians under the persecution of the Roman Empire who understood what it was like for life to be at risk, for life to be what you might pay with. If you, you know, if you said the wrong thing, if you believed the wrong thing, if you didn't worship the emperor, it it could all come crumbling down. And this is not you go to jail. This is death. Okay, I probably should have Hannah come up there and read this because I'm gonna butcher these Chinese names, so excuse me, Hannah. But this is China, 1977. In Qiangxi, China, two Christian girls, Chu Chin Su and Ho Xu Su, and their pastor were sentenced to death. 
As on many such occasions in church history, the persecutors mocked and scorned them for being so foolish as to die for an unseen God. Then they promised the pastor that if he would shoot the girls, they would release him. He accepted. The girls waited patiently in their prison cells for the moment of their execution. They prayed quietly together. Soon guards came for them and led them out. A fellow prisoner who watched the execution through the barred window of his prison cell said that their faces were pale, but beautiful beyond belief, infinitely sad, but sweet. They were placed against a wall and their pastor was brought forward by two guards. They placed him close in front of the girls and put a pistol in his hand. The girls whispered to each other and then bowed respectfully to their pastor. One of them said, before being shot by you, we wish to thank you heartily for what you have meant to us. You baptized us. You taught us the way of eternal life. You gave us holy communion with the same hand in which you now have a gun. May God reward you for all that you have done for us. You also taught us that Christians are sometimes weak and commit terrible sins, but they can be forgiven again. When you regret what you are about to do to us, do not despair like Judas, but repent like Peter. God bless you. And remember that our last thought of you was not one of indignation against your failure. Everyone passes through hours of darkness. We die with gratitude. They bowed again to their pastor, closed their eyes, and stood silently waiting. The pastor had obviously hardened his heart. He raised the pistol and shot them. No sooner had they fallen to the ground than the communist guards put him against the wall for immediate execution. As they shot him, no one heard words of repentance, only the sound of screaming. Romania, 1970. Before I read this, I'll, I'll talk about Patesh a little bit. See, these last two stories, the one I just read and the one I'm about to read, they deal, I think, uniquely with the concept of betrayal. And we're talking about Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love tonight, the, the Christian love, the duty we have towards one another as Christians. Uh, in some ways, there's nothing greater than that sense of betrayal, right? That, that another Christian brother could treat you like the pastor treated those girls who he baptized and blessed and taught and gave communion to. And that was exploited in the Soviet Union in particular. Uh, of course, the communist regime is an atheistic regime, and so one of the things they want, no connections to be left except the, the state, right? The, the government party. And so they uniquely hate religion. They uniquely hate religion, they uniquely hate family, and they uniquely hate even a nation, because nation should be subservient to party, the state, right? And the state goes beyond national borders. So what you found is in a country like Romania, which was actually very religious, very, very Christian, they had a, a huge group of kind of college age uh, revolutionaries, if you will, who were all still Christian. They were very connected to their families. They were very connected to God. And because of that, Romania proved to be a testing grounds 
for the Soviet party to see if they could break the strongest Christians. And that was their intention. Is there a way that we can make people turn on everything that they love and believe in? Is there a way to make a human break down psychologically so much that they will turn on the things that they hold dearest to heart? And Romania was a perfect test case for that because they were so religious. And so this prison, its name is Petesht, it was used only for the most religious uh, of Christians, right? In fact, to go to Petesht, it had to be proven that they were already not going to recant under torture. So the people who were sent to, to Petesht were Christians who had been tortured and not recanted their faith. That was actually a qualification to get to this prison. If they recanted, they're too weak. We only want the best because we've got to prove that there is no one outside our control. And so they sent these most devout, most committed Christians to this prison, the prison at Petesht. Let me read you here. Uh, what he has to say. This is actually Rich, uh, Richard Wormbrand, if you know that. He's the, the pastor who started Voice of the Martyrs. This is him recounting this from a book he read. In January 1970, Pastor Wormbrand of v- uh, VOM wrote this. I quote from a book of D. Baku called Peteshti, the name of a prison in Romania. The guards beat us. On the floor, there were only urine and blood, but not only the guards beat us. Christians who had become renegades under tortures were put to beat their former friends. A friend, the best whom I had had before the the arrest and in whom I believed blindly, hit me with fury in my face. I was not able to say a word, not even to ask him something. I believed it was a nightmare, the collective madness. The beatings lasted three or four hours, once every nine hours. After this, the beaten were stripped naked and made to lie under the beds. A prisoner has been compelled to make in one night 1,000 genuflections. Could kneel down. Normally, a man cannot make more than 50. You are obliged to stand at attention the whole day without the right to move even a muscle. A concentrated look toward the ceiling, serenity on your face, they were all considered signs of secret prayer. You were brought back to reality by being powerfully struck on your leg with a stick. Pastor Wormbrand continued, some Christians recanted under the torture. They became the worst torturers of their former fellow believers, even of their relatives. His account does not do justice to the horrors of Petesht and from that book that he read. And what he's talking about is that Petesht became like an institution. And so as you had Christians who graduated from the prison, they were put back into the prison to befriend a new group of Christians who were coming in to align with them, to, to get close to them for a week and then to beat them mercilessly through this program once they had earned each other's trust, once they had earned the new crop's trust. These things are heinous. I mean, the things that, and I don't say them just to be crude, but I want you to recognize the reality of how dark torture can get. And this, like I said, this podcast I listened to was called The Anti-Humans because humanity was just, the idea of humanity was gone 
in these tortures. These prisoners were forced to do the Eucharist with feces and urine. They were forced to do black masses where they sodomized each other. This is not nice, I mean, this is not a beating, which is kind of what that story, the beating of a friend. This is some of the most heinous stuff you could imagine happened at this prison. For one reason, they were Christians. They believed. They would send letters home to their family, you know, confessing to horrific crimes that they had done that would that would just dishonor and shame their family name before the community. Everything was meant to break them down as people. It's only in light of things that are that dark that you can see when judgment is coming, like the book of Revelation, when, when the Lord is going to bring to an end the evil system of the earth, when you look at it from what Christians have suffered traditionally, outside of our perspective, but, but what Christians have suffered, what the people of God have suffered, then you understand that that's a great thing for the, God, for the God of the universe to bring it to a close, to wrap it up, to cast evil out of the city, and to bring the righteous in. And a little tiny church like Philadelphia, they receive the message, be encouraged. You're doing it right. See, that's what Jesus has to say to them as we look at their letter tonight. Did I leave my, here it is. Uh, That's what we have to, to hear from the Lord tonight. Be encouraged. And like I told you, this message, I feel like we often think we, this is the message we need and sometimes, sometimes the church does, this mess- does need this message for sure. Other times, not so much. Other times we need to be rebuked. We'll see that with Laodicea next week. Here's how it starts in verse seven of Revelation three. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, says this. So Jesus introduces himself again. This is interesting because this is one of the few that is a changed reference, but the basis of it still comes out of that first vision in the first chapter of Revelation, the Son of Man vision. So we see in chapter one, remember John sees the Son of Man, he's brilliant, he's got white hair like the Ancient of Days in a golden sash, he's bronze, his feet are burnished like bronze, his eyes are like fire. I mean, this is a magnificent being. And when John sees him in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and and of Hades. I have the keys. Now that line is the line that Jesus is introducing himself with. I am the one who is holy, who is true, who has the key, but it's a shifted reference of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now, this is a reference to the Old Testament. This is not just something 
John's made up. He's pulling it from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 22. Okay, this chapter is about the royal steward of, of uh, Israel in that day, well, Judah in that day, um, and how they've been corrupt, and they're gonna lose their office, and the Lord is going to bestow that office of the royal steward to someone else, and that person's name is Eliakim. And Eliakim interestingly, stands as this person who the Lord is going to put all this authority in, put all of this this power under Eliakim, and he, in this case, stands for Jesus, right? That's what John is saying. Read this passage here in Isaiah 22, verse 20. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic. He's talking about Shebna, who is the royal steward. I'm going to take your tunic away, Shebna, and I will clothe him with it. I will tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. Okay, that's the quote. That's what he's quoting. Now, what does that mean for us here? Well, what I think it has to do with about the encouragement is this. Like Eliakim, Jesus has been set up as the one who holds authority in God's kingdom. The one who has authority in God's kingdom. He is the one who nothing happens in the kingdom without his knowledge, without his say-so. What he opens stays open, and what he shuts stays shut because the administration of the kingdom is his. Now, it's interesting because we're used to seeing Jesus compared to David as the true king. But this comparison is not about specifically about Jesus the king. It's about Jesus, the one who's in control of what happens, the one who is the administrator of what takes place. Like Eliakim, Jesus is the one who says what goes in the kingdom. All the authority has been placed, of the, of the royal household has been placed on him. Right? He is the one who will bring it to pass. And bring what to pass, though? Well, that's what we have to see. What's he saying to the church? What is these doors he's talking about? What are those things? Sorry. Here we go. Uh, Verse eight, Revelation three, verse eight. I know your deeds. This is Jesus speaking to the church at Philadelphia. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. So what do we know about the church at Philadelphia? We know they're small. There's not much to them. They only have a little power. They don't have great resources. They don't have a great program. They're not, well, I guess in our, our language today, our vernacular, may, maybe they're not a church that's about excellence, <laughs> right? Maybe they're not the best performers. Maybe they're not the most attractive ministry. They have a little power. But what do they have? 
They've kept God's word and they have been faithful. They have not denied Christ. Even in the midst of the pagan reality in which they live in Rome, they have been a faithful church, small but righteous. And he says, because of this, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. I will make them come down. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and I will make them know that I have loved you. Now this looks to be kind of a compilation of two, two quotes, but John is constantly reflecting on Isaiah. So here again, he's kind of melding two passages from Isaiah. Here's the first, Isaiah 60. This prophecy here, by the way, in Isaiah 60, if you don't know the book of Isaiah, chapters one really to 39 is kind of pre-exile. It's, it's, Isaiah is speaking about what's happening uh, to the kingdom of Israel before they are conquered by the Assyrians. But the latter, I guess we'll call it essentially half, 40 to 66, those chapters, are all either exilic or post-exilic, meaning this, the, the judgment that God was going to bring upon them has already happened. It's already taken place. And so the, the message of those chapters is very markedly different in tone. But one of those things that is constantly talked about, and particularly in chapter, the third section of Isaiah, which is chapters 56 to 66, there's this prophetic belief that God's going to bring everything together and, and all the nations are gonna flood to Israel and that he's gonna bring Israel that's been conquered and taken out of the land, he's gonna bring them back. And he's gonna make them a kingdom that the nations stream to and, and that they bow down and that, that all of Israel's fortunes that have been so mired with suffering, they're gonna be reversed. They'll be blessed people. They'll be honored. So here he's quoting Isaiah 60, like, well, in part, right? For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you. Now he's speaking of the nation of Israel, right? All the other nations and kingdoms that will not serve you, Israel, will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, and the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I shall make the place of my feet glorious. And the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord the Zion of the Holy One of Israel, right? That's exactly what he said here. I'm going to make them come down, come and bow down at your feet. But who is the them? See, in Isaiah 60, the them is the nations. Who does John say to the church at Philadelphia? And really, Jesus, who does he say to the church at Philadelphia is gonna bow down at their feet? The lying Jews who are claiming to be Jews but are not truly Jews. Those people who have afflicted them, who have oppressed them, who have been part of the synagogue and cast them out and oppressed them, they are going to come and bow down, which is a reversal of what this is saying, isn't it? This is talking about this happening for the nation of Israel. This is saying that those of the church who've been afflicted by the synagogue of Satan, they're going to come and bow down. 
Now, all of a sudden, not only are the nations going to be judged, but unfaithful Jews, too, will be judged. They, too, will be forced to come and bow down at the feet of the people of God, the faithful, true people of God. Okay, here's the second. He's quoting still from Isaiah, Isaiah 43. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Same thing. This synagogue of Satan, these false Jews are going to come and the Lord will make them know that he loves the church at Philadelphia. These ones who have oppressed that church, they will know that God loves them, okay? So it's a, it's a dual quote. He's quoting those two passages, bringing them together. And it's interesting because he's saying your faithfulness, the faithfulness you have exhibited, I will reward you for it. And those who have afflicted you will face judgment They will come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Okay. Why? Let's go back to the door. That's really an aside. He's saying, listen, here's what I'm gonna do to those who have afflicted and oppressed you. But he's never really gone back to address this open door. Remember, he said first, behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut. What's the door? Here it is. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Okay. Here we go. It's protection. The open door is I am going to keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. Now, we really haven't had to get into too, other than the beginning where we talked about it kind of as a broad sense, we have not had to get into too many passages where we've really had to debate the message and meaning of Revelation. Now here's one. What does keep you from the hour of testing mean? And if you remember those terms, like the millennial and the, the post-millennial, pre-millennial, people have different understandings of this. What does that keep you from the hour of testing? Because a dispensationalist, they hear that and they're like, oh, that's the rapture, clearly, Keep you from the hour of testing. How's that going to happen? He's going to rapture them. Just take them away. Take them out of the world. If you take them out of the world, they're going to miss the hour. And the hour is clearly to test those who dwell on the earth. So what's the way to get people out of testing that's going to 
test those who dwell on the earth, you take them off the earth. Makes perfect sense. Right? That's how a dispensationalist sees it. But for those who are post-trib dispensationalists, uh, not dispensationalists, post-trib um, pre-millennials, I'll say, post-trib pre-millennials, or any other version of your system of eschatology, amillennial or post-millennial, keep you from the hour of testing has a very different meaning. And they probably would suggest most of them that it should be translated, keep you through the hour of testing. This is not about removal from the world, in their opinion. This is about protection through. Right? Because they, in their understanding, this hour that is to come upon the whole world, well, that's probably been true, this great tribulation, since Jesus' cross moment, right? Since his death and resurrection. Post that, we've been in an hour of tribulation. The hour is symbolic in that, in that sense, right? This has all been a great tribulation we've been living through. It's not specifically talking about some great final climactic tribulation. This is about the tribulation that we've all been facing ever since. And one thing you have to remember is in these letters, I've told you that a lot of times people look at them and see not, this message is not just for Philadelphia, but it's for the whole church, for all of history. So when you expand that, not just talking about Philadelphia, but to the whole church, all of a sudden this verse takes on a whole lot of weight. So does this mean, excuse me, does this mean that the whole church is going to be raptured? Does this mean that the whole church is going to miss this hour of testing? Does this mean that everyone's going to be protected through it? What does it mean? Well, I'll give you the argument uh, for the millennials and the, the post-millennials and post-trip, okay? And their argument holds some weight. The Greek behind keep you from or keep from the hour of testing is tereo ek, right? It's a preposition ek and the word keep in Greek. It only shows up one other time in the New Testament, this phrase, and it is interesting context. It shows up in John 17. The only other place it shows up in the, in the scriptures. Okay? Keep you from. And it shows up in John 17. Now, if you remember, John 17 is what? Jesus is what's called his high priestly prayer. He's praying about his unity with the Father. Right? He's praying about his unity with the Father and that him and the Father are one and that he's going to be given back the glory that he had with the Father from, from before time immemorial. Right, he, he is going to have what he once had. And he says a prayer for his people before he goes. And you actually know this verse prob- most likely. You know, If you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard this verse. He says, I ask you, Lord, not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, here's John 17. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Tereo ek. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, if this phrase 
It doesn't mean it has to be, but if this phrase is being used the same way as Revelation, keep you from, Jesus explicitly says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Because it would be easy to say, well, keep them from the evil one. How could God do that? Remove us from the earth. This is Satan's realm, Satan's domain. He's the prince of the power of the air. He has dominion on the earth. So, in order to keep us from him, remove us. Jesus explicitly says, I'm, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from. And what is implied by keep them from the evil one? If you read that, you understand it naturally, right? Protect them from. Protect them from the evil one. So people who think this is not about the rapture, they immediately say, why would you assume it means taking you out of the world? I mean, Jesus uses it in John 17 to mean protect you from, keep you through, you know, protect you in the midst of. That's exactly, they would say, that's exactly what he means here. Protect you through, keep you in the midst of, watch over, guard, whatever way you want to think of that. That's what they would say this means. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily have a great opinion on it, but those are the two positions. Like I told you, I traditionally consider myself post-trib, so I would agree generally that probably does mean protect you from, but my position changed during my study. So I don't know what to tell you, but those are the two main positions on the passage. Okay, whatever the case, the Lord is saying for Philadelphia, this is an open door. (laughs) And and how do you know that this door is not gonna shut in your face? because I'm the one who holds the key of David, who opens doors and no one shuts, and who shuts doors and no one opens. I have the administration of this kingdom. I am in control of what takes place, and I'm telling you, I will keep you from this. I will be with you, I will protect you, I will watch over you. That's what he's saying. I am coming quickly, Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. The Lord says, hey, let me remind you. Hold fast to what you're already doing. You've already not denied my name. You've already been faithful. Do not give up on doing those things. Continue to do them. Continue to do them. Okay. And here's his promise, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. There's no specific verse to point to his background, but most likely the idea of the passage that lays behind this is Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. I know if you know Ezekiel, the end of the book, chapters 40 to 48, is this grand vision of a new temple. 
And in fact, Ezekiel 40 to 48 is uniquely important to Revelation as we get to the end because the imagery of chapters 21 and 22, the beautiful reality of what the new Jerusalem is gonna be like, that language comes from Ezekiel 40 to 48. The leaves that are healing for the nations, the water flowing out from the throne, that's all imagery from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 40 to 48. And the whole time, all, all of those chapters, Ezekiel's just being given a vision where they measure the temple and you see how big it is. It's this many cubits and this many cubits and there's this guard room and that guard room and here's the pillars and here's everything that consists of it. And then the Lord enters it and water goes out from his throne and fills up just fills up the surrounding area. And then all of a sudden trees sprout and those trees are leaves for healing and food, right? And John uses all that imagery to talk about New Jerusalem. But here in the letter to Philadelphia, that's probably what he's referring to is Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. This idea that if you overcome, you will be part of that vision. The vision that Ezekiel had of a new temple where the Lord is in it and what he says in it, it's great. It's great. What God says to Ezekiel in that vision, this is the place where I will dwell with my people forever. They will always be in my presence. And that's what he says. I will make the one who overcomes a pillar in the temple. You, you who've had only a little power, you've been nothing. You're insignificant in the eyes of the world. I'm gonna make you a pillar, a rock. The temple, the the beauty and the glory of the temple is rested on you, the pillar that upholds it. I'm gonna make you a pillar in that temple. And not only that, you will never go out from it again. You will always be in God's presence. And on that pillar, I'm gonna write the name of my God, the name of the Father. And I'm gonna write the name of this city, New Jerusalem, and I'm gonna write my new name. Which if you read on in Revelation, it says there's a name written on Jesus, on his thigh and on his sash. King of kings and Lord of lords. That name will be written on you. If you have an ear, hear what the Spirit says. Sometimes it's necessary for the Lord to just encourage the faithful to keep going. When they feel small and insignificant and like they're nothing, This is a reminder to the church at Philadelphia and every church after that needs to hear this. If you can overcome, if you can hold fast to what you've done, to who you've been, you'll be a part of the temple of God. Just like Ezekiel 40 to 48, just like Revelation 21 and 22, you will not go out from it anymore. You will forever be a a pillar of, in God's community. You will forever be in his presence and on you will be written the name of all things that are holy, the name of God, the name of Christ, and the name of the beautiful community that is made up of God's people, New Jerusalem.
That's his encouragement for the church at Philadelphia. And that's where we end tonight. At least for our passage. I, uh, feel like I've needed encouragement too. And, um, I wish Monique was out here with the kids, but that's okay. No, it's okay. It's okay. Um, oh, there's stuff I can hear. Uh, yeah, I've needed encouragement too. And uh, like I said at the beginning of this, I've got two, two weeks left after the next, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. And... Um, you know, I've never been one to, like, hide the reality of where I'm at. I've always been pretty open and honest, even from the, the pulpit. <laughs> um, and that's just who I am. I want, I, I want to continue to be that way because I, I hope it shows, you know, the honesty of my heart where I'm at. I've needed to be encouraged. Um, you know, this... Two years of doing this, I've loved it. I've loved every week, but it has been hard. And, um, you know, we've, except for the, the faithful few that I see here, and really kind of a, the core group that we initiated at the very beginning of Wellspring, you know, from the very beginning, these, the first few months of it, really, uh, you know, we've had, I legitimately would say over a hundred people that have said they were going to come and didn't come. I mean, it, just like person after person after person. And there is definitely discouragement in that. Um, and that's not to, to blame someone even per se, but it's just like you look at the weight of that and uh, it's hard to not be discouraged when you have a church of 10 people. And you know, you've invited a hundred people. You had a hundred people. We'll just leave it at that. A hundred people who've said, yeah, I'll, I'll come check it out. And no one does. And, uh, I don't know what that is. I, I, I'm, I, I, uh, <laughs> I've run between Calvinist and Arminian, as you already know. <laughs> so, you know, there's a side of me that says maybe God's hand is in it. And there's a side of me that says, that's not to say that these people are not responsible for not holding up to their word. <laughs> Both are true to, to an extent. Um, but it's led me to a place, and I think it definitely led in part um, to the decision I thought that it was the right time to close, to close our church. And, uh, you all right, Mama? Good. It's okay. That it was the right time. It was the right time to do this. And, you know, I, I know I just revealed that last week, but, um, but I really feel like God's confirmed that ever since we made that decision. And, um, but I've thought about it a lot. And, and, you know, I could, you know, you guys know, I could go on and on about everything. And, I interpret my life so much through the lens of scripture, probably more than I should, but 
that's just how I see my life. And uh, there's this level after experiencing that and maybe believing that there's a part of God's hand in it, that there's a, something in me <laughs> that says maybe it's time to shake the dust off my feet in this town. And um, all that to say, uh, you know, we're closing the church, which you guys already know, but Monique and I have decided we're going to move to Nashville, um, to Nashville, Tennessee. So, um, I think we're just done with this city. <laughs> and that's the not to say anything about any of your commitment to it. You know, I'm not going to put my whatever my calling and whatever my reality is on you. Because, uh, you know, the Lord works with each his own, his own way. But for me and for my family, I think that this is time to shake the dust off. Because I don't know that the city wants what I have to offer. And uh, there's a heartbreak in that for me too. I mean, this is my home. This is my hometown. Uh, but it's also not the same place that I grew up anymore. It's changed so radically over these years. And um, Mo and I prayed about it a lot and talked about it a lot and and I think more than anything, we just want to give our kids a chance to have a community. Uh, this community has loved them, so this is not a comment on this community. Um, but just a place where they can have friends and have a school that they can go to and have a, a life that they can live. And um, you guys know, I think, beyond just the present moment. And for me, thinking about moving across the country and starting a new life, is also thinking about uh, starting a new clan, you know, a new family line in which Monique and I are the matriarch and patriarch of this family. Um, that not just our kids, but that our grandkids and our great-grandkids could have a community of people that, that love them and that they feel connected to and that they don't feel even ideologically opposed to. <laughs> um, I'm not going to stand here and say that, that this is something that I feel like God called us to do because I've had God do that. You know, moving to Portland, God spoke to me very specifically that I needed to do it. Closest I've ever heard to the audible voice of God. That was clear. You know, move home to come back to Seattle. He spoke very specifically. That was clear. Uh, this, I just feel like, is maybe it's uh, God opening a door. And there are times in life where the will of God is not, this is the one thing I want you to do. And actually, uh, the, what I've come to believe is that there are many times in your life where God gives you multiple let's call them blessable options where he gives you a choice. And that doesn't mean you ever stop seeking him and praying and asking, but there are times where it's not just, it's like, go your way and I'm gonna go with you. You know, here's your choice. There's many choices. Make a choice and I'm gonna follow you. This is not a, a morality question, not like this is right and this is wrong. And, and this is not a specific thing. Like I told you about God saying to Portland, do this. And, and to not do that would be disobedient when he says do this. 
this is just, you know, Jeremy, Monique, if you want to stay, stay. If you want to go, go. But make your decision and know I go with you. And, um, and I think the decision we made is ultimately for our kids. Um, and they've sacrificed so much for me. Really, my whole family has. I mean, to go to Portland and, and the way we lived the years in Portland was not easy financially and, and just generally. I mean, I was going to school and there was times Mo and I were working five different jobs at the same time between us. It was just, and, and I was going to school at the same time, you know, I was in seminary. So they've sacrificed so much to bring me full circle, to give me healing. Portland was a big part of that. Coming home to Seattle and doing this church and actually seeing, you know, a group of people through a crisis time like COVID was, that's what God wanted me to do. And that, that has brought me full circle on healing. And I really feel like that chapter of my life is closing. And there's a new chapter ahead that's a chapter of blessing. But I don't think that's here. That chapter is always going to mean something to me. It's always going to be maybe the quintessential story of my life. The grace that God had for me like Aaron talked about tonight, where the moments of grace become defining moments that change everything about who you are, that's me. I don't even mean a salvific moment at this point. I'd been a Christian since I was a little kid. I mean, just the, the grace of God to forgive and bring something better than you even thought possible. Like I said, I feel like that, that chapter, Seattle, Portland, this West Coast life that I've lived, I feel like it's come to a close and the Lord has brought it completely full circle for me and, and is bringing it, uh, I guess if we'll use the metaphor of tonight, he's shutting that door. He's closing that chapter and that there's a new chapter to be opened and a new door that's waiting that he has opened and no one can shut. And to be honest, I'm excited about it. I feel encouraged by it. And I feel encouraged to go on an adventure with my family, to do something new in a city that, let's be honest, has a lot of cultural Christians. You know, that, that Christianity is baked into the culture. And I don't mean that in a good way, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> it's baked into the culture. And so everyone's a Christian. I feel like that is the place that I'm best at. Is helping people to see the depth of what Christianity actually is. The depths of who God really is and the depths of what his words have to say. And I feel like that's the group of people that the Lord will use me to minister to. So I don't know. I mean, we really are stepping out into the unknown. This is not like a job situation I've got lined up and everything's falling into place and we know the school. I mean, none of it, it's all up in the air. Um, but I don't know. Maybe I feel a little like Abraham. 
Just go and see what it is. So I wanted to share that with you guys. I really haven't told many people. You know, I told uh, my mom and dad, obviously, and told Tyler and Aaron and told my family yesterday. We still haven't uh, talked to everyone yet, but we told my family yesterday. And um, you guys are the next closest group of people, most important group of people I wanted to tell was our church. And of course, whatever loyal podcast listeners we have. Yeah, I just, uh, I, wanted, <laughs> I wanted you guys to know because you deserve to know. You guys have been faithful and supported our family through this whole season and been a part of our community. And, and I wanted to share it with you next. Um, so we've got a lot more people to, to tell and we got to prep our house to sell and get ready to buy a new one and move us across the country and everything. And it's a lot to be done. We're hoping to be there before the next school year so that the kids can get into school. Um, but that's a lot of lot to do in the summer. So that's our plan. We'll see how it pans out, <laughs> but that is the plan. But I wanted you guys to know because you guys have been the people that have always loved us, always cared for us, always been praying for us. And I, I pray that you would... Uh, I would I would covet it <laughs> for you to pray, continue to pray for our family, to find whatever the next chapter is, whatever the next open door is uh, for us. And that this next chapter, and, and I don't even mean this for me, I, 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 I would love it, but for my kids and for my wife, that this next chapter would be a chapter of blessing upon them because they deserve it. <laughs> I know how they've loved me and what they've sacrificed for me. And if you guys would pray that, I would appreciate it. Um, I love you. You know, you'll always hear my heart. And this is where we're at. And uh, that's kind of our, our next steps. But it is a grief it is a grief to leave my parents and leave this city that has been my home and um, and to leave this church, uh, to say goodbye to this church uh, as it's kind of completed what this mission was. So that's all I have for you tonight. Tyler, could you uh, come up and close us in a prayer?